What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use all day, every day. And that goal stretches far beyond the grid to every area of our lives. A better economy, a cleaner community, a cleaner economy. And doing that means that we have to actually think farther out in the future and actually have a a shared goal and a shared understanding of what we want that to look like. Caroline Golan is the Global Head of Energy and Sustainability Policy at Google Data Centers. Later in the show, she'll describe how better technology and better planning are driving rapid decarbonization for the benefit of everyone. For more information on Google's zero carbon goals, go to g.co forward slash carbon free by 2030. If the world knew me, for one thing, it would be... Leaving a legacy of really human-centered urban design. I'm most proud of... Making breakfast for myself in the morning. (laughs) It's a good way to start the day. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. Transportation accounts for almost a third of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. Electrifying cars and trucks is an essential part of decarbonizing mobility. But there's another vital piece in the race to zero-emission transportation, public transit. Transit tech is emerging as one of the most exciting areas in the climate tech space. It's made up of companies using technology to get people out of their cars and onto shared vehicles like vans, buses, and trains. And the need has never been greater. The pandemic threw public transportation systems around the world into turmoil as ridership fell and revenue collapsed. Transit tech companies stepped in, reshaping public transportation overnight, enabling essential workers to get to their jobs. And they're applying the same technology to rethink public transit for a decarbonized and more equitable world. That's where our guest, Remix co-founder Tiffany Chu, focuses her energy. We work with about 400 cities and agencies around the world, helping them plan stronger public transit networks, designing safer streets, and uh, really helping them embrace uh, new innovation in terms of planning the best transportation networks for their communities. Remix is a software company that helps city planners make smarter and faster decisions about how to fund, build, and reconfigure transit systems. Tiffany was one of four co-founders of Remix. She started as COO and became CEO in 2019. She stayed in that role until March of 2021, when Remix was acquired by Via, a public transit networking company, for $100 million. Today, she's the senior vice president of Remix at Via. So what made Remix an acquisition target worth $100 million? The traditional transit planning process is very slow. Take a new bus route as an example. Until fairly recently, planners might sit around using markers or colored pencils to draw new routes on a map, and then they'll migrate that into geospatial software. Taking some of that data and then moving into Excel spreadsheets to do costing and calculations, and then uh, maybe bringing it into a separate software like PowerPoint or presentation software to share the plans with uh, the public. With Remix, all of that data collection, copying, and translating is simplified, and the real-world benefits can be immediate. 
For example, at the start of the pandemic, New York City's transit system faced a big dilemma. They had to shut down their entire subway system overnight for extra cleaning. A lot of daytime commuting had vanished, but there were still a lot of people who needed rides. They still needed to be able to carry folks, a lot of essential workers, to and from their jobs that worked not the nine to five. So they needed a completely new overnight bus network, essentially to replace the subway system. And they had to do that over the course of a weekend. And they presented it to the board, and then the board passed it, and that was how the MTA adapted during COVID. Normally, this process would take a couple of months, but Remix helped city officials pull it together in hours. And now you could do it all in one place in a couple of minutes and share out with the community um, pretty immediately and get that back and forth, which becomes a much more iterative, rapid process um, for making changes to our transportation system. Remix grew out of a coding fellowship hackathon in 2014 into a multi-million dollar company with dozens of employees and eventually into a hundred million dollar acquisition. I sat down with Tiffany to talk about her early struggles as an architecture graduate who couldn't find a job and how that set her on a path to change public transportation. We also talked about why transit tech is getting so much attention right now and its role in our zero carbon future. We started with her upbringing in suburban New Jersey, where she grew up as a first-generation Taiwanese-American. I would say I was very lucky because my parents were immigrants. They definitely wanted to give me everything that they didn't have um, back home in, in more rural parts of Taiwan. And so I felt that every single opportunity that they could give me, I, I was given. You know, obviously, with English not being their first language, I felt like I had to understand the world in a completely different way and sometimes um, on behalf of them. Um, and it really allowed me to have the experience of feeling, you know, a little bit different whenever I went to elementary school or, you know, even preschool, I could tell that I was different from from the other kids. You know, I was Taiwanese and everyone else was white. Mm. But it also allowed me to have the benefit of, you know, a completely different perspective. I felt pretty rooted in in both cultures. I know you have this long track record dating all the way back to your chi- childhood of creating things that never existed before. And in your childhood, that manifested as you being a young artist. How did that love of creating and the love of art, along with this early affinity that I know you had for math and science, lead you to study architecture at MIT? Oh my gosh. I was the kid in school whenever we were given some sort of creative project. I would just find some excuse to stay up way past midnight, (laughs) putting the absolute perfectionist. Oh Wait, my how goodness. Old are you when you're I was like, you know, in fifth grade, sixth grade, <laughs> regularly, I would just be that perfectionist who wanted, um, you know, every single school project to be perfect, especially if mm-hmm. it was like some sort of art related project or like a history project that had an art related component or an English project that had some crafting element. Um, you know, I took it really seriously and I found myself just really falling in love with anything uh, creative. And then that led me to also understanding kind of the different career paths from a creativity angle. I was also, you know, really excited about math and science. And so architecture became the perfect marriage of those two sides of my brain. And I ended up going to MIT because uh, they were the first architecture school in the U.S. And when I went there for uh, the, the admit weekend, I felt myself surrounded by 
mostly other nerds, which was where I felt the most comfortable. (laughs) Uh, While studying architecture, I know you became interested in the broader questions about how we design cities and not just buildings, which led you to find urban planning. Why did you choose that systems level approach to design versus just sticking with architecture as a single area of study? Yeah, I was always really deeply affected by the built environment as a kid moving between the suburbs in New Jersey, in in Bridgewater and Somerset County, and, you know, watching my dad take the train into New York regularly. And whenever I exited the subway in New York, I would always kind of lift my head up and see the skyscrapers and felt this overwhelming sense of awe. And I I still feel that way to this day, even though I've been to New York thousands of times. I still feel that little bit of, you know, country mouse in a city uh, feel. And I think my passion for understanding how the built environment impacts the human condition is really why I started expanding my horizon beyond just architecture, beyond just the design of buildings into how urban planning as a whole um, in a macro sense affects the way that we move around and, and how we go about our everyday lives. I know one of your internships while at MIT was as a technical intern at Pixar Animation Studios, which isn't what people might expect when they think architecture internships. Um, What drew you to Pixar and what did you learn about the built environment while designing digital worlds? The intimate characters all the way up to story arcs and designing sets for the overall narrative and being able to see fantasy environments that helped new worlds come to life was something that was so compelling to me. And after Pixar, I ended up finding my way into user experience design uh, from from a digital sense. In terms of that that bridge from MIT to that role, I know immediately following MIT, it was actually hard for you to get a job right out of college. This was during the economic crisis in the U.S. What was that experience like, just not being able to immediately move into a full-time role? I remember walking into the career fair at MIT, which is in the fall of senior year. So, you know, shortly after we all come back to campus and, you know, the 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 booths in the career fair at MIT, row after row of management consulting firm, finance and banks, a ton of, you know, really big tech companies. And I, you know, walked along the booths and, you know, took the free swag and just felt so confused as to, you know, where I belonged. And I think during that entire year, while all of my peers were getting, you know, numerous full-time offers from these more traditional companies, I was just throwing my resume um, into basically every architecture firm's jobs email that I could find. And, you know, later on, I realized that's probably not the best way to get a job. Um, But I remember sending my Mm -hmm. resume out maybe 50 to 100 places and did not did not find anything, you know, not having a full time thing at the end of four years of, you know, very challenging degree, obviously, did things to my self esteem that, you know, I'm I had to to struggle with and, and learn until today. What advice would you have for somebody going through a similar experience? Like, you know, well-known elite school, incredible program, but just struggling to find where they fit after graduation? I would say 
I wish I had spent more time meeting people in different adjacent fields throughout the course of college. I think I was so focused on, you know, finishing classes and getting good grades that I wasn't opening up to broader other areas. Um, And I knew that, you know, even though I didn't want to be an architect, there were a lot of other adjacent industries that were really exciting. And I think the advice I would give is to just be super open-minded and, you know, any project can become a freelance project that you can then add to your your portfolio and, and get some more experience that way. So eventually in 2010, you did land your first full-time job at a consulting firm called Continuum, where you were a designer and innovation consultant. And that role led to your next job as the first UX designer at Zipcar, which was one of the earliest car sharing platforms. What was it like working at Zipcar in the really early days of car sharing? So Zipcar was such an energizing place and it was in Cambridge where um, I was also going to school. And so I had been a long time Zipcar user, which we call Zipsters. And through that process, I think I found a really amazing intersection of my interests, which was between cities and technology and civic design and then obviously transportation and how it relates to urban planning that I knew you know, I wanted to to do more of it. And in 2014, you actually left this, this job that kind of sounds like your dream job. And after eight years of Boston, you traveled across the country to start a new chapter. You moved here to the Bay Area and started a fellowship with Code for America. For those that aren't familiar, what is Code for America? And then how did you decide to make that kind of really big life transition? Well, I had lived in Boston for about eight years at that point, and I was ready for a new city, a new adventure, and I was getting really interested in how cities and their constituencies and uh, technology interact. And when I heard about Code for America, I actually heard about it through a friend who had done the fellowship in Boston, and um, there were all these cool new prototypes and interfaces and things that connected the community with the city that I was like, okay, I need to figure out where all this stuff is happening and and get get involved and jump jump in the middle of it. So that's when I applied and it probably changed the trajectory of what I do in life so in so many ways. And I think um, for many people, their journey in civic technology um, started at Code for America. And Jen Palka and the the founders of the organization really, really started a, a movement in a big way that I can attribute to a lot of um, future successes, not just for me, but for for many others. Mm-hmm. And is it a was it a year long fellowship? Yes, it was a year long, and um, they basically took a bunch of mid level technologists and threw them into a new city. A lot of which they've most people had not been to. So I was assigned to the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, and I did a number of projects helping them launch their open data portal, draft their open data policy, help the IT and neighborhoods department work together. And it was basically a a one-year of service, of public service, to show people, you know, what was possible when you when you brought technology into local government. I know you met your co-founders, the people who became your co-founders during your Code for America fellowship. Uh, what were the seeds of Remix? And what did that look like? Like, what did the the earliest iterations of Remix look like? And how did they come to be as a result of the Code for America fellowship? 
So there was a hackathon during the fellowship. That was a way to get all the fellows to meet each other, kind of an icebreaker activity. And we wanted to build a prototype to help residents of San Francisco, such as ourselves, suggest better transit routes to the city, to um, SFMTA, the agency. And we had stitched together a bunch of pretty cool open source mapping components that were just coming out. And we uh, shared it um, with the Code for America community at a mid-year presentation. And it was called transitmix.net. That was the URL the URL that we had secured at the time. Oh, the dot .net. That's and, like true startup. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> you know when it's, when it's early, when it's a dot .net. Yeah. And then we actually realized that Code for America had tweeted it out. And, you know, it was like a pretty innocent tweet. You know, hey, look at what our fellows are working on, transitmix.net, check it out. And we had gone to Marin for an offsite, and there was absolutely no reception up there. And when we came back across the Golden Gate Bridge, our phone started blowing up. And we were like, what is happening? Turns out during the time when we were off-site without reception, a bunch of other people retweeted our link on Twitter. And then a bunch of urban planning blogs and transportation blogs picked it up. And hundreds of planners had seen what we had built and started creating their own fantasy transit maps on our prototype. So did it crash it? it? Completely, it crashed it. Oh my gosh, yes, it crashed it. And you know, the emails that we had gotten were not necessarily all positive. It was more like, "Hey, your app broke," and I was in the middle of drawing my map. Please <laughs> fix it. And we were just completely overwhelmed. We didn't realize anyone outside of us would want to use it. So then, you know, we got the site back up um, after a little while, and we continued to get emails. We got about two hundred hmm. emails from planners who wrote, you know, hey, I saw what you built. I love it. Can you please add these 10 features because I'm using it for my city's long-term transit plan. It'd be great if we could, you know, have it by next week. <laughs> and you're like, uh, we built this for a hackathon. Like, can we yeah, get a customer we agreement? Like, <laughs> we were like, oh, great. Yeah, our nice team. to meet you. We'll get right on it. <laughs> That viral tweet forced Tiffany and her co-creators to pull together a serious business plan quickly, and they turned to Y Combinator for help. First, a word about our partners who make this show possible. What It Takes is sponsored by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. At the top of the show, we heard from Caroline Golan, the Global Head of Energy and Sustainability Policy at Google Data Centers. Which means that I spend my time leading our global strategy for how we meet our energy and sustainability goals. One of those goals is to source 24-7 carbon-free energy for all of Google's operations. Cheap, clean energy and predictive analytics are making it possible. We are in an age where data and analytics opens up the door for us to be able to make those long-term goals a reality. But decarbonizing the world's grids is more than just a technology play. It's about using smarter planning to push the benefit of clean energy to the widest number of people possible. I think we're all coming to the reality as corporates, as purchasers, that we are investors in the economy and that we have historically competed over technology projects. 
But the reality is we need to start competing over impact in our communities and in our societies. As we're exploring in this episode, better transit decisions help drive upward economic mobility, public health, and better climate outcomes. The same is true of a decarbonized grid. We can see how investing in a clean grid drives innovation and jobs, helps stave off climate change, which drives resilience, which also drives health and overall equity impacts. And so I think whatever your specific technology lane is, whatever problem is that you're trying to solve, whatever infrastructure that is, take a step back and think about what the broader impact is that you potentially have. Google is working with communities, planners, environmental groups, and corporate clean energy buyers to drive that bottom-up change for electricity systems around the globe. It's not just about us. (laughs) It's about the grid. And the grid is the lifeblood of the economy. And if you can fix the grid, you can empower so many other things to prosper. And that's what we're really trying to do. If you're as inspired as I am by this vision and you can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by NextTracker. With trackers and controls based on machine learning technologies, NextTracker builds connected solar power plants that keep getting more intelligent. Solar is quickly becoming the cheapest form of electricity on the planet, and NextTracker technology helps developers lower their cost and boost energy yields. NextTracker is also committed to increasing diversity within the solar workforce, working with Renewables Forward, Solar Energy International, and the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. NextTracker is educating and training the next generation of climate tech professionals, people from all backgrounds. If you want to learn more about NextTracker jobs, visit nexttracker.com forward slash careers. And so then what happened next? How did you decide to take this hackathon idea and, and launch it as a company? And how did you decide that your Code Fair America colleagues would then become your co-founders? So as our fellowship was starting to wrap up, we were you know, as a user researcher and designer, I wanted to understand why all these people were emailing us. So my co-founders and I actually turned every email that we had gotten into a user research interview. Wow. And we reached out to them, either invited them over to the Code for America office for coffee or did a, a Zoom call with them and, you know, asked them a bunch of questions around why why they wrote to us and what their job was and, you know, what they do for for their day-to-day workflows. And we had gotten enough positive feedback and there was so much momentum that at the end of the fellowship, we decided to pursue it full time. And this was while all of our other fellows were applying to other jobs. And we ended up applying to a couple accelerators and incubator programs and got into Y Combinator, which was a really big milestone for us because the majority of our co-founding team, none of us had started a company before and we really needed some coaching. (laughs) Um, So, you know, it was Sam Dan, Danny, and myself, Sam and I are designers. Dan and Danny are are software engineers. And we really needed some help in figuring out our business model and and what that all meant. So that was, getting into YC was a pretty big deal for us. And did they provide the support that you were looking for? Yes. So I remember so clearly, Dan and I, we decided to attend um, an enterprise sales training session that YC was putting on. And we sat down and, you know, the the guys going through, you know, 101, this is how you do enterprise sales. And um, I think it very 
slowly, but then very quickly dawned upon us that the company that we had created was intended to be an enterprise sales company. You didn't know that going into the training. (laughs) Well, we didn't realize going into YC, we were like, oh, you know, there's like a cool product here and it'll, it like went viral and, you know, there's somehow going to become a company and a sustainable profit model from this. And it wasn't until the training where, you know, they were walking us through the the funnel and all the stages of a sales process and how to tackle inbound leads versus outbound leads. And it was just such a moment for us. I remember looking at Dan and thinking, wait, who's going to do this? Are we, <laughs> am I, am I supposed to be doing this? Is this my job now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, it was one of those uh, learnings where, you know, you just had to dive right in or else, you know, there was going to be no actual business model for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had signed up for creating a business. <laughs> it sounds like you realized there's the the things you know you don't know and then the things you don't know you don't know. And it sounds like you didn't know that this was something to explore or even think about prior to starting the company. Yeah. And and had I known, I probably wouldn't have decided to jump in oh. to start the company because it was wow. so scary and unknown. Yeah. So Remix is defined as a transit tech company. What is transit tech and why is it so important to build a zero carbon future? So transit tech is a new category and it is, I think, similar in the ways that people talk about fintech for finance or edtech for education technology, where by bringing the power of technology to a more traditional industry, there are so many ways that we can add value and continue to innovate and better serve our customers, which in this case are both transit agencies and transit riders. So transit tech is really about embracing this new world. And a lot of the goals for transit tech are to empower cities and agencies with the tools and technology that they need to succeed in a completely new world that is technology enabled while simultaneously understanding that sharing rides is probably the most important thing that we can do to reduce the carbon footprint of uh, a lot of our single occupancy vehicles. So that is the purpose of Transit Tech, both from a social justice angle for expanding opportunity, as well as a climate change angle for reducing emissions. Tell me more about that, that social justice angle. Why is social equity so integrated and important to your mission? So not everybody knows this, but the zip code that you're born in is actually the single largest contributor to whether or not you're able to move up in the economic mobility ladder. And so by giving the option of mobility to people as early on as we can to, you know, kids who need to find jobs um, and for folks who need to access other opportunities such as schools and grocery stores and healthcare. All of that is the underpinning of why transportation is as important as it it is in our day-to-day lives and oftentimes is fairly underestimated because, you know, most of the people in, in the U.S. have access to some sort of 
single occupancy vehicle and that becomes their primary way of getting around where I would say for the majority of folks who don't have access to a single occupancy private vehicle, um, their opportunities are severely limited and to expand those opportunities is really the the, the main purpose of public mm-hmm. transportation. Mm-hmm. Well said. How does the platform work, especially as it relates to ensuring that access that you just spoke to? So the way Remix works is that we are a software as a service solution, which means we build one platform and it serves hundreds of cities and agencies around the world. And every single new feature that we build for an agency, it actually, um, we give it to everybody else because it expands the functionality of our platform. And so we'll bring in different slices of data into our platform and be able to visualize where transit routes are, where they could possibly go, who might ride it, whether or not it's a good investment. Same for bike lanes and pedestrian improvements to streets. We take a look at where collisions are um, in any geographic area and help you visualize where are the highest level of crashes and be able to identify where you might need to make some safety improvements to improve that intersection. So anything from, you know, a small detour to a major system redesign, um, all of that can be done in Remix in a really user-friendly, easy way that lowers the barrier to, to entry into understanding. Let's talk about fundraising. In 2015, soon after Y Combinator, Remix raised a seed round led by Sequoia, a pretty big name in the venture space. And then in 2017, you raised a 10 million Series A, also led by Sequoia. In 2019, you raised a 15 million Series B with Energy Impact Partners for a total of 27 million in funding. What was your experience like fundraising? And then what advice do you have for entrepreneurs based on your experience? There were so many investors who initially looked at us and then were confused because they had never been pitched by a startup trying to sell to government. Mm -hmm. You know, it seemed crazy. It seemed silly. It seemed, why would you go for such an antiquated market like that? And so we had a lot of investors initially write us off because of... I would say just unfamiliarity or unwillingness to understand the civic space in a deeper, more meaningful way. What was that like for you to be written off by them? Were you like, you just don't understand the opportunity or did it? Did you internalize it and think, what am I doing? Is this really a valuable opportunity for them? You know, I think it hit probably all of my co-founders in different ways. I know for me specifically, it just made me realize that the venture world at large just maybe didn't necessarily care about the issues that I personally cared about as a person and as a founder. And, you know, I had to make peace with that a little bit. And so I would say my co-founder, Sam, who was actually the CEO before me, he was an incredible fundraiser and paved the way for us to raise our seed in Series A and then later Series B rounds in um, a way that was really inspirational to, you know, be along for the ride, but also be a part of and watch how our pitch changed and evolved based on how the market evolved. For example, Energy Impact Partners was a firm that, you know, was not on our radar in the seed rounds. Also, they didn't do super early investments, but as our progress as a company and our revenue went up and to the right, we started understanding and hearing many more companies trying to raise 
funding from climate tech investors, which back in 2014, that was not even a word that people said. And the connection between transportation and the future of cities and climate change became so much clearer that I think if we had raised now, you know, there probably would have been 50 VCs just we could list in a spreadsheet that cares about climate, whereas back in 2014, that was definitely not the case. I know you grew Remix from just your founding team to a team of 65 when you sold to Via, a global public transportation and logistics company earlier this year. What did you learn about building a team from your core team of co-founders to a team of 65? Wow. Yes. Gosh, I learned so much. It was seven years of just go, 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 go. And we grew from zero to 65 over that time. And I think one of the most important things that I learned, and it was a pretty hard lesson for me to learn, is that I didn't need to be the best at everything. You know, I felt like being a founder, I also needed to be the best marketer of the company, the best salesperson, the best designer. And all of those things, I think, together would have made for a very strong early employee at any company. But over time, once you scale, you have to hire people who are way better than you at the thing that your company needs to do. Um, and I think that was probably the the mm-hmm. hardest lesson that I learned. But I, without learning that, I don't think we would have been able to to build the team that we did. How long did it take you to figure that out? I feel like I'm still learning that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think once we started hiring our executive team, um, maybe about two or three years in, doing all of those interviews and really understanding, okay, I need to hire someone who, not someone who I feel like I can manage, but someone who can bring to the table all of these new skill sets that we don't have at all and to be a complete rock star at them in a way that allows them to do their job in a way that inspires the rest of the team, um, but then also teaches the founders on what that role could be. You mentioned earlier that you didn't start as CEO, your co-founder Sam did. Um, How did you become CEO and what was it like moving into that role given that it was a new role? Yes, that was a very interesting, complex process. So at the end of five years, um, Sam wanted to take a step back and he stayed on the board but was no longer involved in day-to-day CEO activities. And so we all decided that the next best person to lead the company would be me. And, you know, I took that very seriously and it was at the end of 2019 when that transition happened and I had all these really big visions for what I was going to be as a CEO, how I was going to lead the company and how the the team would change and our direction. And a couple months later, I remember when I had first made some of a few really big hires, um, they were they were going to start on March 16th, 2020. And that was, I think, the first day that San Francisco announced that the city was going to shut down due to COVID. Wow, what timing? <laughs> how did you how did you navigate that? I mean, I, I I will be honest, that was probably one of the the darkest days of being a leader and you know, this would apply to any CEO at any company when there's just so much uncertainty and 
you know, luckily we had a lot of stability with the the revenue in the business that we had built up, but, you know, no one knew how long that would last um, in such an unprecedented time. And, you know, we implemented a ton of just like contingency plans, you know, just in case XYZ customer didn't come back, you know, we would do this and, you know, communicating that to our team and letting them know that we wouldn't do layoffs, but, you know, we would tighten up in many, many other places as a result. Gosh, I would not like to relive those days again. Yeah, yeah. If you could do it all over again, is there anything that you would do differently? You know, I've done a lot of thinking around the types of companies that are really mission-driven and also the types of companies that, you know, raise a a ton of money. Um, And I think there's like a very narrow sweet spot of companies that are super mission driven and become billion dollar companies. And I think that's not every company. And I think that's actually okay. Um, And so my advice would maybe be contrarian um, in that I think if I were to do it again, or if I were to advise, and actually I do advise other startup founders in in this and that, I think you should raise less money in general. I think too many startup founders see raising money as kind of the the end-all, be-all goal. And really, it's just a means to an end. And if you don't approach it that way, then you potentially raise too much money at too high of a valuation before you figured out product market fit or what it is that you're actually going to do with the money. And I think it becomes a, a real danger to um, the future survival of, of the team. What did that look like at Remix? Did you feel like you had raised too much? And what was the impact of that for you? I think for us, because we had such good traction early on, which is not usually the case for companies, we found it we found it not so difficult to raise money once we had the numbers. And I think it was continuing that same trajectory of year-over-year growth that is very hard, especially for companies selling to to government. But I think at the same time, it's such a huge market and such a huge opportunity that you need to just be a little bit more careful about how you frame what your growth rate is going to be over time and how that matches up with, you know, what opportunities are going to open in the market. Um, I think for us, we we raised money in a way that I thought was responsible. But I think if I were the CEO from the beginning, I I maybe would have raised less money. And not to say that, you know, that we didn't have a really awesome outcome, but I think it set the bar very, very high. And, you know, we really, really had to to work extremely hard to to meet that bar every single time. Yeah. I think it's really salient advice, especially now where there is so much capital in the space in a way that there hasn't been before. A lot of investors that are new to climate tech and um, really extreme in some cases valuations. And I think oftentimes, as you said, founders think that that is the indicator of success of how much you can raise. And like you said, it's just, that's the, it's not the case. It's, it's how much can you thoughtfully deploy in a way that aligns with your long-term business goals. So I think it's really good advice, especially in this market. Exactly. Yeah. 
In terms of Remix today, so earlier this year in March of 2021, Remix was acquired by Via for $100 million. How did the acquisition process unfold and what ultimately motivated you as CEO and your team to sell the company? So I had met Daniel Remote, the CEO of Via at a conference a couple of years back. We were on the same keynote panel and I'd always followed Via a little bit from afar and they had always followed Remix a little bit from afar. And I think what I didn't realize until Daniel reached out to us was that Via had started its life as a consumer-driven ride ride-sharing company, ride-hailing, ride-pooling company. They only ever did pooled rides, which was their main differentiator. And then had kind of quietly unlocked this completely new business opportunity around taking the software and technology that they had developed for the consumer market and then packaging it and developing it in a way that could become software to power transit agencies and cities to do similar things around extending their transit systems more flexibly. And through the course of that process, I was really interested to hear Via moving towards this new market and embracing it in a way where they had such strong operational expertise, having basically run their own transit systems for a number of years. And what they really saw was in Remix was the planning angle that they did not have. So when COVID hit and at the same time, Daniel and his team made us a pretty compelling offer, I felt it was you know, my responsibility to to make a decision, not just on behalf of Remix at the time, but of all of our customers and all of our colleagues who, you know, were in it for the long run. I wanted to find a really, really solid long-term home uh, for Remix. So that was a journey. Based on your experience, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who were you know, relatively early stage, like you all got acquired after your Series B. What advice would you give to them if they're considering an acquisition? I would say to be open-minded. And while also being open-minded, it's really important to find that strategic fit. You know, as you're building the company, always be on the lookout to find other larger companies who have capital, who could see what you're building as kind of the key to unlock a totally new vertical or opportunity for them that they wouldn't be able to build internally. And at the same time, don't have it so top of mind that it completely distracts you from building the business. It needs to be something that's top of mind, but not at the front. Via was in the news recently because they just raised an additional $130 million, putting their total capital raised at $800 million. Does that have an impact on Remix? And if so, what does it allow Remix to do? Yes wholeheartedly. And it really allows us to fully integrate in with the Via suite of products and be able to build out basically an end-to-end solution from planning through to operations and deployment for cities and transit agencies that currently doesn't exist in the marketplace. So being able to not only plan out what your transportation system looks like, but then be able to operationalize that and deploy it and continuously create a feedback loop that then feeds back into the planning process to make your system better. That's that's the vision that we're trying to achieve and we will achieve with the new capital infusion. 
Looking back at your leadership over the course of building Remix, how has your leadership style changed, if at all, from when you started the company? So I am uh, an extrovert and I love, you know, having people around me. It really gives me energy. And part of that is I've learned this hard fact about myself, which is I'm a, a natural people pleaser. And I think that makes me a really strong coach and confidant. And I think it sometimes makes me less good of uh, a manager because when you're managing a really large team, the fact that if you feel pressure to keep everyone happy all the time, it really wears on you. And I think that's what happened to me during COVID when everyone was dealing with a different version of how COVID was impacting them negatively and having that weigh on, you know, your shoulders is is a lot. So I think one of my big leadership lessons is, you know, when you put the the team or the company ahead of the individuals, I think that's what makes the overall uh, company stronger and overall organization more resilient, but it might be at the expense of um, specific individuals, which is just a trade-off that you have to be prepared to make. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one. Do you have any advice on how to do that? Like, I think conceptually it makes sense, but in practice, I can imagine it's really hard or I know it's really hard. <laughs> how, how would you advise a founder or CEO to go about actually doing it? I think when you're a founder receiving feedback, it often comes at you from the loudest people in the room. And it's the people who, you know, feel most confident in being able to express their opinions or the people who feel closest to you because they trust you enough to be able to share um, so directly. And there's likely this whole other body of individuals who either may not feel so strongly or may feel differently. And so we did this practice at Remix where we use Culture Amp, which was kind of a culture survey. And we surveyed people regularly throughout COVID to see how they were feeling and had really, really high response rates. And I think a lot of honesty shared through it. And when we saw the numbers of our Culture Amp score going up and to the right, it, you know, really helped me feel confident that, you know, the decisions that I were making, that I was making was on behalf of the whole company as opposed to just the folks who were the loudest. Yeah. Uh, I know your partner is also an entrepreneur who started and sold his company about the same time that you started and sold Remix. What was it like being on this entrepreneurial journey with somebody who you love at the same time? Oh gosh, that was um, something that I could not have planned, but it was maybe one of my biggest lifesavers over the course of this adventure. So Reed, who is my partner, he and I met actually at Code for America. And <laughs> he also um, is an architect uh, and designer by training. And we both simultaneously ended up pursuing side projects that became full-time companies um, from the, the nonprofit fellowship. And his company, Next Request, they build software for public records requests for cities and uh, to help with government transparency and Freedom of Information Acts. And they actually ended up selling their company to Archive Social, another Code for America accelerator company, uh, during um, the same time period that we did. So three months after 
um, us wow. in July of 2021. I hope you both took a nice vacation or at least some time <laughs> off after. Um, sort of. It just kind of continued the intensity <laughs> post-acquisition. Um, we We do need to take some time off. And at the same time, you know, having such parallel journeys has been really amazing as just like an unintentional support system. And, you know, when I talk to founders, other founders, they can totally understand like, oh, 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 you know, I'll empathize with you about this or about hiring or about, you know, whatever. And, you know, I could always do the same with with Reed and, you know, he would just sit in the room over there. Um, so it was uh, a really kind of crazy coincidence and one of the things I'm probably most grateful for. Last question before we move into our high voltage round, which is what will the future of public transportation look like in a decade? So I could answer this question in two ways. Uh, one is that I think if if we don't do anything different than what we do today, I think public transit will continue to spiral into kind of this low ridership, purely social services kind of uh, outcome, which is not good for anyone. It's kind of like, it could be this base level of service that like only if you're super, super impoverished, you take public transit because that's the only thing that you have. It's like a, it's like a lifeline. However, I think there's a completely different future that could be a possibility um, especially due to this new infrastructure bill that just got passed, where public transit gets the investment it needs to really survive. And one of my favorite quotes, I believe, is from the mayor, the former mayor of Bogota. The quote is, a developed country is not a place where the poor have cars, it's where the rich use public transportation. Let's move into our high voltage round. As you know, these are quick questions, quick answers, starting with Tiffany, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would be a kingfisher. Uh, it's this kind of bird that is very spirited and is small like me, likes the hunt and also loves fish like me. <laughs> I love it. How did you come across this bird? Are you a birder? Um, I would say... I'm not as advanced as other birders would be to call myself a birder, but I'm a bird enthusiast. I like it. What inspires you? My passion for people and uh, being able to envision a better life around us. Hmm. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would be an illustrator. Ooh, what kind? I think it would be really fun to illustrate uh, books for children. Mm, nice. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My mom. Mm. She's a tiger mom through and through. <laughs> um, what's the best investment you've ever made? I think the best investment I ever made was taking a semester off from MIT to study abroad in Copenhagen my junior year. And it allowed me to see a completely different aspect of urban design and urban planning that I never before experienced and led me to what I do today. Mm, I love it. 
What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I thought that the people who were the most successful are the ones who work the hardest and work the longest hours. And it took me a long time to understand that a lot of people just work in smarter ways. And that was hard for me to understand. Mm -hmm. When are you your best self? In the morning when I wake up and I tell myself I want to go for a run. Nice. Are you a big runner? Which is very, which is rare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining but when you running I feel every it, day. I'm like, oh my God, today's the day. <laughs> oh, that's great. What is your worst trait? I am very optimistic. And so I always think things take way less time than they do. <laughs> and so that's why I'm perpetually late and I'm always working on it. <laughs> I can very much relate to all of that. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I would somehow want to wave a magic wand and have every kid who's born start from the same place um, in the race of life. Love it. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? I would want it to be Secretary Pete Buttigieg of USDOT. Okay, somebody listening can make that happen. So whoever <laughs> you are... Make it happen and, and let us know. <laughs> uh, what is your best quality? I can get very excited very easily, and that excitement can translate to others very easily. <laughs> I love it. What's the hardest kind of help to ask for? I find it very hard to tell people that I am not able to do something after I commit. Um, and I think sometimes I just need to, to say no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They're not aligned in their vision. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... I think I would have tried to spend more time living abroad. Mm -hmm. And last question. To build a successful startup, what it takes is... More perseverance than you can ever imagine. Mm. So well said. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm really excited for our listeners to hear your story and the story of Remix. Thanks so much, Em. Of course. My pleasure. That was Tiffany Chu, the co-founder and former CEO of Remix. Today, she's the SVP of Remix at VIA. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank Google for making what it takes possible. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with globally leading corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. And we're hiring. Powerhouse is hiring a vice president of strategy and operations, a head of business development, and we'll be hiring a partnership associate soon. And Powerhouse Ventures is hiring a partner or a principal. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. And follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse. You can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey, Jamie Kaiser, and Dalvin Abuaji. Rye Story Fisher and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. Thank you.